You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Micah's home is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem in a town called Morasheth. It's important we set up the scene, right? Because the prophets are disjointed if we don't know what's going down. And so his preaching probably happens uh, in the capital city amidst a, a very turbulent time in Judah's history. Micah's contemporaries uh, are Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. So when you're reading your scriptures and you read about Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah, Micah, they're all around the same time, except Amos's prophetic ministry took place sometime uh, around 760-750 in a period uh, which may be described as the calm before the Assyrian storm. Syria is about to come in and, and take things over as a dominant empire in the ancient Near East. Hosea's ministry uh, took place at a time where we're able to see some of the uh, effects that the storm had specifically on the northern kingdom, which is where Hosea's focusing his ministry. But then enter Micah, who is going to bear witness to the effects of the Assyrian storm uh, on both the north and the south, on both Israel and Judah. So Micah covers some territory. See, the Assyrian Empire is influent, has influence over the smaller states of the ancient Near East, and Micah anticipates a time when Assyria is going to rise up and bring destruction to the northern kingdom of Israel and in turn bring destruction to Judah and Jerusalem, all of God's people. Both defeats, history tells us, results in massive deportations of the Hebrew people. History tells us that the residents of the northern kingdom are swallowed up and forever really forgotten. History tells us that 46 surrounding cities of Judah are lost. History tells us that King Hezekiah made a really wise political deal in order to save Jerusalem when he offered a tribute to Assyria. That's the background that the entire scope of Micah covers. And so we have to then look at God's people's rap sheet. Now, if you haven't been with us every week, we've looked at the rap sheet, right? We, we've tried to figure out what, what's going on. Why did God have to send a prophet in the first place? Because if a prophet comes to you, it's not always a good thing. It's not like, hey, y'all, the, the prophet's here. No, I mean, he's got something to say. Um, and it's usually because God's been trying to speak and we haven't been listening. And so we understand that pagan gods are being worshipped here. The poor, as always, right, the most vulnerable among them, the poor are oppressed by the wealthy and the powerful. The courts have become corrupt with bribery. The politicians have become crooked. Dishonest business practices have become the norm. The priests and the prophets have become for sale. Um, they've sold out to greed, and the prophets now are telling lies, false prophecies. Society has obviously, given that, become disordered and morality disregarded. And Micah makes a big deal about this. There is hatred. The text seems to, the text says abhorrence, but there's a hatred. Check it. For God's justice and commandments. Now, in our first introduction message, we talked about justice in the Hebrew scriptures. Justice made up of two words, tzedakah and mishpat, tzedakah, translated righteousness in your Bibles. 
uh, justice translated mishpat, tzedakah, which means social rightness or neighbor-to-neighbor rightness or social justice, mishpat meaning legal justice or legal rightness. And so when Yahweh speaks of righteousness and justice, justice and righteousness in, in the same context, Yahweh is saying, I want right everywhere. I want everything that's going wrong made right. Neighbor-to-neighbor, public square to the courts, and everywhere in between. Well, there's an abhorrence for that. And so it's all of this that compels God to take his people to court. All right, so if you have your Bibles, Micah 6. Micah 6 is where we're going to be. Micah 6 is, is, is setting up a courtroom drama. Remember, prophets are poets. They're artists. <laughs> they're, they're not just truth tellers. They're, they are poetic. And so there's imagery. And so Micah is establishing this courtroom drama. And it's a case between the Lord and his covenant people. The Lord is the plaintiff. The people are his accused. And the mountains and the hills and the foundations of the earth serve as the jury and the witnesses. And you hear it in the text. So instead of just listening, see the text. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. The plaintiff, God, presents his accusations now. He says, my people, listen to the language, my people, what have I done to you? Or, How have I wearied you? Testify against me. I think this is a central text in this entire narrative. What have I done to you? The Lord says to his people. My my people, my, my beloved, my bride, my children. How have I have I worn you out? Why have you grown so impatient with me? And we don't know, we don't know exactly. I mean, we can look at all these things, but we don't know exactly why they had become so weary of God. But if the rap sheet, if their rap sheet is any indication, perhaps they were tired of God's politics and his way of organizing their lives and the ethics that they were to embrace. Maybe, maybe materialism had won the battle for their hearts. I mean, even the priests and the prophets were sold out to greed. Their services could be purchased for the right price. Maybe life. Maybe life uh, for the people of God became about achievement and acquisition, position and, and property, social status and self-sufficiency. I mean, really, who has time to love your neighbor as yourself when you're just trying to stay ahead of them? Ain't nobody got time for that. If their rap sheet is any indication, perhaps God's people just wanted to be great again, and this time they wanted to be the ones to define what greatness was. They were, they were tired of God telling them what, what greatness means. So they elected officials and ordained priests and commissioned prophets that would tell them what they wanted to hear, that would it tickle the itch that they had 
to live the life they wanted, what they considered to be the good life. I mean, prophets like Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah, they just need to take their prophetic poetry elsewhere. Let justice roll like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream, Amos says. Ain't nobody got time for that either. Yet the heart of God cries out through Micah. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? I mean, have you ever been in a relationship with someone you love and every indication is that somehow they're weary of you and you don't know why? And in the depths of your soul, you ache, wondering why. I, I, I raised you. I, I have loved you. I have stood with you. And that's why Yahweh files the lawsuit. And it's time for him to present more evidence. And so we get to verse 4. And he says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed? What Balaam and son of Beor answered him? And what happened from Acacia Grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts? Now see, this may not sound like much to us, but what Yahweh is saying is, remember, remember us? Like, remember when we first met and I heard you crying out in the wilderness and you were just broken and busted and abandoned? generation after generation after generation, and I refused to stand by? Like, I came to you, man. I, I came to you, and I rescued you. You've forgotten who you are, and you've forgotten where you've been. And so now you think self-sufficiency and injustice is the way, but now you are suffering from amnesia. See, they had lost sight of the grace of God revealed in their own life. And see, we don't think sometimes that grace is, is a New Testament, it's not just a New Testament thing. Grace is an Old Testament thing too. Because grace is nothing less than God doing for His people what they're incapable of doing for themselves. That's called grace. And God is saying in this evidence here, when He's presenting this evidence, and the mountains and the hills are, are there, and He's presenting this evidence, and He's saying, look, look, I've always been doing for you what you were incapable of doing for yourself. Dating back to Israel, I redeemed you from slavery in the oppressive hand of the Egyptian empire. In my grace, I gave you Moses, who gave you the law. And in my grace, I gave you Aaron, who gave you atonement through the priests. And in my grace, I gave you guidance through my prophetess, Miriam. In my grace, he says, I delivered you from the curse of Balak and Balaam. In my grace, he says, I led you through the Jordan to your first encampment. I was there in your first encampment. I was there when you took your first steps in Gilgal. See, the Lord, as the plaintiff, has made his argument. He's presented his evidence. And now the Lord, as plaintiff, maybe he rests his case. And so he seems to take a seat. And now the voice in the text changes. Micah now must play the role no longer of the plaintiff, the Lord. He plays the role of the accused. This is what prophets have to do. And so he says, 
well, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body, for my own sin? It's just like, it's like the accused are asking, well, what would it take? What would it take for God to come rescue us? And how can we settle the case, God? Will you settle out of court? I mean, does he want birth offerings? You know, are calves a year old? Because they're much more valuable than the newborns. Would he, would he settle? Would he settle with thousands of rams like he did one time when Solomon offered thousands of rams? I mean, we've done that before. We remember that. Would he settle for literal rivers of precious oil used for food and for healing? Or would he prefer the extreme, the prophet asks? I mean, does he want my firstborn? I mean, I know the law of Moses forbids it, and the prophets wouldn't let it happen, but, you know, they've been bought and sold. I'm sure I can pay them to let this happen. Would he take that? What will it take to settle the case? The accused asks. They ask, what does the Lord want from me? What does the Lord want from us? This is the question that Micah asks in the place of the accused. What does God want from us? And the answer to the question is given. And it seems like the voice changes once again. And Micah may be speaking for himself, but on God's behalf now. Maybe it is God speaking through Micah to be understood as God speaking through Micah. Either way, Micah says, you know what, we'll settle this case then. And verse 8 says, y'all, by the way, y'all's in the Hebrew, y'all, he has told you what is good. And he has told you what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord had already made known what was expected to them. The whole tradition of the Torah, the law of Moses and the wisdom sayings have been long known to Israel. Do justice, love faithfulness, walk humbly, or in the, in the Hebrew, attentively. Walk humbly and attentively with God. And at first glance, it would be easy to read that text, verse 8, and sort of preach and offer a traditional sermon on the text because it sounds like the prophet is saying, look, do some things. You want to know what the Lord wants from you? He wants you to do stuff. He wants you to do. He wants you to love. He wants you to walk. He wants you to do justice. He wants you to love faithfulness. He wants you to walk humbly. Do things. That's what the Lord wants. And indeed, that is what Micah says. He says, you need to do things. You need to do. You need to love. You need to walk. But if we listen carefully, there's something that we learn. See, what we learn is that you can't get to doing and you can't get to loving, and you can't get to walking, if the Lord hasn't gotten you. What does the Lord want from me? It's like Micah saying, He wants you. He doesn't want your, your ritual sacrifices. He doesn't want your, your, your literal rivers of oil. He doesn't want your best choice 
Cavs. He doesn't want your faithful attendance to the worship gatherings. I mean, he wants those things, but that's not, that's not what he wants only. Like, he wants something more. He doesn't want your weekend visits. He doesn't want your, your prayers when the plane's going down, because you know everybody's a Christian when the plane's going down. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't want those things. He, he wants you. Because when he has you, and you have him, you don't have to be so angry. You can do justice out of a broken heart as opposed to out of wrath and anger. You can love faithfulness out of a purity of heart rather than just a stubborn will to try to fix people. You can walk humbly with God as opposed to just thinking that you're the only one who loves them. In your self-righteous ways, Fred. You know what the Lord wants from you? Micah says. He wants you. I think that's why he says earlier, the Lord. Don't you remember? Don't you remember I wanted you? Like when you were a slave, I wanted you. Nobody wanted you, I wanted you. I gave you people to tell you that I wanted you. I didn't leave you abandoned. Under the curse, I, I, I wanted you. I didn't leave you to yourselves. I wanted you. In His grace and His faithful love, He rescued them. In His grace and faithful love, He restored them. In His restorative justice, He didn't punitively destroy them and obliterate them. He restored them by making right what they had even made wrong for themselves. See, among the many things that this text could tell us, I think this text is trying to help us hear and see that God will take us to court. That's what He's got to do to get our attention. And He'll speak directly to where we're not doing and loving and walking. But He does so because He wants to remind us that, that I want you. It's you that I want. See, Micah has a word for Israel, and it's a word for us. The same God who loves Israel with a relentless, self-giving love, who stubbornly refuses to give up on them, stubbornly refuses to give up on us. The same God who does for Israel what they're incapable of doing for themselves, grace, say grace, is the same God who offers grace for us, is the same God who's willing to do for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves if we would just hear Him say, I want you, I want you. As the God of all grace. He knows something we don't know though. He knows that if we forget where we have been before we knew Him, then we will forget who we are and miss Him entirely. See, Paul, the apostle, wanted us to know that too. So he says in Ephesians 2, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedience. What Paul is saying, Paul, here's the thing. When we read this text, we often read this text to be about sin, and we think sin is behavior. 
That is, it's just behavior. Sin is a social condition and a condition of the life and the heart because the Bible teaches, Paul says in Romans 5, he says, we're, we're locked under this reign of sin and death. There's a reign of sin and death. He later on says in Ephesians, that has given birth to systems in our society and in our world and in our lives, systems and principalities and powers. Their sin is a systemic social condition that has wrecked humanity so deeply that we're just dead and we're locked on it. We can't climb ourselves out of that system. We can't even invent a new one. Now, as a result of that, the world stakes its claim in violence and anxiety and exclusivism and coercion, and the world is forming itself in light of those things. The world thinks that it changes through more violence, which gives birth to violence, rather than anything other than love. And so we're locked, stock and barrel, in this world of anger and hatred, and we become angry and hateful people. I've never met a... Well, that's not true. I've met people who said, I worship the devil, but I've never met one of you, at least here, that I can know of. I, I never, let me talk about me. I never woke up and be like, man, I can't wait to walk according to the spirit and the power of the air. But yet Paul is saying, you all walk this way, though. You were all this. You were dead. You were complicit to these systems. You were formed by these systems. And you lived like it. You played according to their rules and you were dead. What I love about Paul is his humility because then he says, look, we, we too, verse 3, we too all previously lived among these, these systems in, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature under wrath as the others were also. But, this disruptive conjunction, but, but God, but God wanted us. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. God looked at us and said, I, I, didn't, make, I didn't make the world. I didn't make you. I didn't make, I didn't make this for this. I need you to do justice. I need you to love faithfulness. I need you to walk humbly, but I need you to be alive. I need you. I want you, God said. And it says in verse 6 that together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Fred, you can have more degrees than a thermometer, but you didn't earn this. You're saved because of grace through faith and not from works so that no one can boast. For we are His creation. In the Greek, it means masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. That's what it means. We're His symphony. Did you know that? Sometimes we make some wonky, jacked up music. And He's saying, no, 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 no. You're playing the wrong notes because you're living under the leadership of the wrong conductor. No, you're my masterpiece. You're my wondrous work of art. You hang on the walls of my museum for all the world to see. My museum's the world, he says. It's my palace. And I want people, when they see your colors, all of your beautiful, glorious colors, all of your differences, come together and create this beautiful thing called a church. If it would just be beautiful. You're my creation. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. See, in the gospel of grace, as seen on the cross of Calvary, we remember that our faith never begins with what we do for God. Our faith only begins with what God has done for us. You hear me? Your faith doesn't begin with what you do for God. And it's not your faith alone that saves you is what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say, ultimately, it's the object of your faith that saves you. Trust that. That's how you're saved by grace through faith. Trust him. Trust him. That's how you're saved by grace through faith alone because you have placed faith in the one who can save. We're not saved by making society right. We're saved by living in such a way that models the kind of society God is creating. One of justice. One of faithfulness. One of humility. One of love. What this means is that all that we have is grace. Simple, reckless, untamable, unexplainable, scandalous grace. All that we have is a gift. All that is good is ours, not by right or even reward, but by grace. I mean, look, there's much that we've earned and our, our culture really honors this sort of rugged individualism and pursuit of the American dream kind of stuff. And so we buy into the notion that was being told uh, under, the, under the people of Israel that somehow we can be self-sufficient and we think that that's the deal, right? Like we can save ourselves and secure ourselves and all these things. And, and so there's much we've earned. We've earned our education, our salary, our home and a good night's sleep. But here's the thing, all of that is possible only because we've been given so much. We've been given eyes to see. We've been given ears to hear, mouths to speak, minds to shape ideas. We've been given lives. That's how we have any of these other things. It's still grace. See, what God asks of us is that we be astonished. <laughs> that we be astonished. That he would even bother. That he would even say, let's take him to court instead of saying, lock him up and throw away the key. He said, no, 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 I'm going to take him to court. We're going to try this thing out the whole time. He wants to settle. He just wants you. So years ago, after God first awakened me to the reality of my sin and pride, which, by the way, he's doing every day. He's going to do probably in three hours. My faith radically shifted when spending time with these prophets. Because in spending time with these prophets, they open the doors to a prophet who is my Lord that I'd never seen. I mean, I read the Bible. I could, I could have maybe even won a Bible bowl or two. But I didn't know. I'd read that Jesus had shared the table with sinners, but I, I didn't know. See, Grandma used to always tell me bad companionship corrupts good habits. And she could show me where Paul said it too. You know, you hang out with those folks, you get the stink on you, right? I looked at Jesus, and he was all the time with those folks, and he didn't get the stink on him. And then he says something like, go and do likewise. See, I saw Jesus sitting with anyone at the table who wanted to sit with him. They didn't have to clean up first either, by the way. You ever notice that? They don't have to clean up. They just come. 
and what I learned from Jesus? If he didn't choose who gets to sit at the table, I sure don't get a choice. I don't get to choose who sits at the table either. Neither do you. You don't get to choose. See, I must learn how to sit with beggars, liars, cheaters, thieves, the rich, the poor. I got to learn how to sit with artists, but I'm an artist, so that's, I can handle that, I can handle that, but I got to learn how to sit with engineers, man. The intellectually gifted, the intellectually disabled, the Pharisees, the last, the least, the lost, left out, the lonely. I got to learn how to sit with them. I got to learn how to sit with them because God looks at me and Jesus and says, oh, I want you and I, and I want them. And so then when I say it's beside them, it's beside them. When I'm sitting with them as we're sitting with him, that I remember that I too am a beggar. I'm a cheater. I'm a, I'm a liar. I've been a thief. I've been sexually immoral. Compared to many, I'm rich. Compared to different in different ways to others, I'm, I'm poor. I'm an artist. I'm too dumb to be an engineer. I'm not particularly intellectually gifted. I've most certainly been a Pharisee, and sometimes I still am. And in the eyes of some, even though I'm quite handsome, I'm easily forgotten. Oh, come on now. Robin's like, come on, Fred. Why, we all know you ain't pretty. See, it's here at the table that I remember who I've been. It's here at the table that I remember where I've been. It's here at the table that I remember to whom I belong, despite where I've been. See, because this is a table of grace. This is a table that reminds me that God is always doing for Fred what he can't do for himself. He jacks it up and God makes it right. I got to live with the consequences sometimes. I deserve to be alone, but he makes sure that I'm not alone. He's given me wisdom more times than I can count, and I've blown it more times than I would like to admit, and yet I get to come to this table. I've been a liar. I've been a thief. I've been a cheater. And yet I get to come to this table. And so do you. Not one single person here is denied the invitation to this table. Not one. Because He wants you. That's what He wants Israel to see. That's what Paul wanted the church to see. He just wants you. But, but, Even though He loves you just as you are and not as you should be because you will never be how you should be, He loves you too much to leave you as you are. And He wants to lead you into who you can be. And so when we come to this table of grace, we remember that He wants us. And that His hope seems to be that the beauty of this table will form us in such a way that we will understand this, that the work of God's grace in our lives is to make us more gracious. He wants a grace-given community to become a community that easily gives grace. He wants a forgiven 
community to become a forgiving community. He wants a beloved community to become a more loving community. And so nobody here gets to ever choose or sits at this table, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, uh, progressive, liberal, conservative, white, black, brown, from here, not from here. Even folks who like Alabama can come here to this table. To this table and be welcomed here because God wants you. But you need to know He's going to say to you at the table what He says to me. He's going to say to all of us. He's going to say, I want Adam. I want Adam to know that I want him, but I want Adam to know that when he comes to me, I need him to do justice. I need him to love faithfulness because that's what he's seen in me. I need him to walk humbly with me, attentive with me. I need him to do that because the work of grace is to make us more gracious.